Like many professions in the arts, acting isn't a choice, it's a compulsion. You're both blessed and cursed by the bug. But what makes an actor stay in the biz despite all the hardships that come with it? It's definitely not the stability. In this episode, I speak with Yusuf Kerkor, a stage and screen actor based in London. We discuss what led him to become an actor, the difference between the fantasy and reality of a working actor's life, the recession-proof quality of his chosen career, and diversity in the industry. Most recently, Yusuf can be seen in Rufus Jones's comedy, Home, which airs in the UK on Channel 4. He plays the part of a Syrian refugee called Sammy, who ends up in Dorking after sneaking into a family's car on their way home from a holiday in France. It's a timely, touching, and heartwarming comedy that's absolutely worth a watch. He has also made appearances on the first season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, which is on Amazon, George R.R. Martin's Night Flyers, which is available on Netflix and Sci-Fi, and has also performed in a variety of plays including Royal Shakespeare Company productions. This interview was recorded in January 2019. I'm Yasmina Sakat, and you're listening to Not That Original, a podcast that brings you stories that may not be so different from your own. Yusuf, what made you want to become an actor? Uh, it's one of those things that you don't really choose and there's a lot of, uh, I think everybody asks themselves that question a lot. But really, I think it's just something you fall, I've, I fell into, I think. It's the sort of, it's the thing I do best and in the end it kind of chooses you. So, I, I mean, I, I think if any any thought is given to being an actor and wanting to do this job with, with knowing everything that it entails, I don't think any rational person would want to do it uh, because they think it's a good idea. I think people do it because they, they have a compulsion to do it and a need to do it. And that, that tends to start at a very, very young age. You've either, you've either got that bug or you don't. And, uh, and I did from second grade at RAS, uh, uh, the school we both went to. And then um, it just kind of carried on from there. And no matter what I did, I was always back at, the theater no matter what I did I was always acing my acting classes and you know barely passing all the other classes and stuff so it just it just it was it was just the right thing for me to go into what made you realize that it was more than just a hobby though yeah so definitely in elementary school middle school high school I would I it was just something that I that I there was it was an extracurricular that I was unconsciously very passionate about in fact I used to say that I didn't want to be an actor that it was my biggest fear is that I would sort of fail in my in academia and just and get spat out the other end and become an actor and and I think I realized it was more than just a hobby in college where you know you have that that bit where you have to try and decide what your major is and the panic about wanting to pick the right one. In fact, I I I, I declared psychology uh, mm-hmm. as my major, and uh, and I failed the class. I mean, I never went to any class. I barely went to any classes. Uh, didn't really get the homework very well. Uh, psychology one hundred and one is is very technical and very bio- biology uh, based, and I just I crumpled at that first hurdle. 
And my psychology mentor was the one that said, listen, uh, I said, what other classes are you taking? And I, and I reeled off this list of drama classes of all different angles and specialized classes. And, so, and he said, look, I, I think you're an actor, but uh, figure it out. And that was the beginnings of it. And then uh, the uni that I went to uh, put part of the uh, requirements was after a play had finished or a, a, a performance of some kind had finished, the performers had to stay behind and help dismantle everything, you know, and uh, and uh, you could make a bit of money doing that. So the majority of us actors just did that. We'd we'd call it we'd call stripping down the set, taking mm-hmm. it taking it down. And there was just this image one day of my friend Mahdi uh, on the very top of a scaffold, and uh, and he was he was a dancer as well as an actor. And he was in this very balletic lunge with a wrench in one hand. <laughs> and he was sort of calling to somebody else who was also another fantastic performer that I admired and and that was working next to another person I admired. And I just I had this image of all of them and I thought, this is... And I got that sense of family, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's what did it for me. It's that feeling of, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not just doing something I like. I'm actually... I'm. I'm. A, I actually have access to a family that I feel very, very at home in, and with people that I admire and respect, and we have an unspoken understanding of what we're all about. So, I, and I think that's that's a very similar experience for a lot of people, you know, that it's, um, yeah, a sense of belonging, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that's what tips it over into into being a a professional vocation you don't just do it for a living you live it as well you live yeah i mean in the beginning you what 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 hooks you is is the feeling that you're now part of you've now found your people you know yeah you've got your family that you know and that we all everybody loves their family hopefully but then uh now you've found people who speak your shorthand you know what i mean they speak Mm -hmm. your language they understand you you can say things with a brutal honesty that would make your real family wobble but makes these new f- friends uh they it just makes them understand you more and they get you and uh, so you all speak the same language you're all passionate about the same thing and that hooks you in and eventually as time goes on then you become a professional and that's got its own uh, that has a universal difference um what makes a professional a professional is something I think you can that crosses industries but in the beginning you're certainly roped in by the feeling that you've now found your home you know did it take a lot of convincing of your parents when you finally decided that you wanted to study drama and become an actor yeah I mean it was um, I mean thankfully both my parents are in academia they're both pedagogues so they're very they understand the nature of education you know they they teach teachers at least certainly my dad uh, uh, does or did before he retired um, so they they understood that ultimately one's passion is what one needs to follow uh, there's no denying that certainly my dad had higher hopes for me it took a longer time to it took a long time for them to be comfortable no doubt about it I mean we're mm-hmm. talking over a decade and initially uh, comfortable with me being an actor, majoring in drama dance, and and at the at the collegiate level, yeah, yeah, that was a bit hard for my for my father, and uh, I forget, I think he said something in almost in jest, but he said, you know, would you want to sweep streets for a living? <laughs> Which, um, 
but the power of it, of it, of it as a vocation is mm-hmm. that you think, yeah, I, I, if that's what it takes to be an actor and i got to sweep streets the rest of my life and live as a homeless person, I'll do it. That, that's the feeling that comes with it. So it's very, very powerful. It just sucks you in, you know. And God help you if you don't have any talent and you really, really want to do it because you'll be doing it for the rest of your life. Uh, or I say, I, that's, I don't mean... I don't mean don't have any talent. I mean, don't have any natural talent, you know. Uh, if it takes you a little while to learn it, mm-hmm. uh, then it can. Then you can be stuck in, a, in an industry that isn't, that isn't being kind to you for a very long time. It's not you know? kind in general, though. And it's not kind in general, no. I mean, I say, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling on my words because I, I actually believe that anybody can do it. Uh, I don't believe the idea that some people have the talent some people don't but i do believe that some people are are born with with just a uh, it's easy for certain people mm-hmm. and it's more difficult for others some people have a second second uh, sort of an inner knowledge of the workings of performance that one teaches people in their f- first um first years of education when it comes comes to acting but um I think, uh, and, and some people aren't. Some people, it comes a bit more difficult. But, but, but there's there's hope for everyone, you know. Yeah. Well, what do you think it takes to become an actor? Or to manage making a living out of acting? Oh, that's, that's two different things. Okay. So um, I think anyone can can choose to be an actor if they've got that desire. I think the desire is, is an important key. Mm-hmm. Without that desire, everything crumbles. I think as with everything in life, you do what you have that burning desire to do. That's the thing that takes over. Uh, you know, you have to have that. I mean, passion is even, passion is the wrong word. And it's an unspoken thing. You know, actors talk to each other and they say, why do we do it? You know, we don't quite, nobody quite understands why we put up with it. You know, we are technically insane by definition. You know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result is 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 almost word for word the nature of an actor's job. Yeah. You know, you just audition over and over again. You get rejected over and over again. Um, and and so making a living as an actor has to do with how well you can take rejection, how well you can present yourself, how well do you understand the way other people see you versus how you see yourself. Because there's there's an image we all have of ourselves, but then there's an image that other people have when they meet you for the first time. And the way you make a living as an actor, consistent living as an actor, is by massively impressing somebody you've never met within the first 10 seconds of meeting them. And if you're, let's say, not the most popular person in your in your class, for example, or, uh, or you don't think that you're the most uh, uh, stereotypically good-looking, then you then s- there has to be something else there mm-hmm. that wows them and then impresses them and makes them go, oh, I want this is the person I want. And that ranges from making sure that you're auditioning for the right parts for you, that you're actually going in there to audition for a part that's very close to what you present to the world anyway for example mm-hmm. um that you really uh, or that you have a background that the person wants to work with there's so many little bits um you know but that's i would say the root of all of it is the desire because i think all professional actors have quit maybe two or three times they haven't been able to carry that through all the way yeah but i don't i think if you if you've never told yourself I'm done with this. What am I doing? Then you're probably not, you know, it's not there yet. You know what I mean? How many times have you quit? Oh, I've, yeah, about two or three times. And it's a mental, it's an internal thing. It's yeah. a really deep in your heart 
oh my God, I've wasted 10 years of my life on this. I have no other qualifications. I need to do something else because this is BS. This is not working out for me. And then sure enough, then the phone rings a couple of days later and you forget all about that. Or you get a day job and then, all, and then lo and behold, you do really well at the day job and you, and you start to get an affirmation and a, uh, and, a, um, and a joy from what you do that you realize you've been waiting for and looking for. That's what you've been waiting for out of an acting job. Yeah. You've been waiting to feel useful. You've been waiting to do something with your life and your days that helps other people, that makes other people, uh, that has an effect on other people. So you're not just dwindling away in your in your little corner of the world. Uh, so you get a, a job as a teaching assistant or as a yoga instructor or as an assistant or as a salesperson or something like that. And all of a sudden you start to get all those positive affirmations. But if you don't have the desire burning underneath all of that to be an actor, there's a chance you'll stay in that job that gives you those things. And I think people who are actors for the rest of their lives will never, ever accept anything other than being an actor at the, at the fundamentally. Is that what brought you back every time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the beginning when I was younger, I couldn't even go watch plays. Because uh, watching the play was too painful, I would think I have to. I have to be on the stage. I I don't belong in the audience. I belong on the stage, mm-hmm. and so uh, watching a play was very hard. I still remember that. And um, and that, again, that's the difference between what hooks you in, what's starting out, the decision yeah. to be an actor, and then being a professional. Which being a professional means you force yourself to sit in the audience and watch, so that you can experience your industry and know what industry you're a part of. You know. Uh, whereas in the beginning, the passion and the desire is, is, is what you need. You've told me in the past that uh, you found acting recession-proof. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so my new favorite phrase. Um, acting is recession-proof. So when the, when the recession hit in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, actors didn't really notice because the way people were having to live their lives, not for the most part, but... Uh, you heard a lot of stories about people who they lost their jobs or yeah. or their job that used to be secure was now a zero hours contract mm-hmm. uh, they were now basically uh, didn't know how long the contract was going to last etc cetera, etc cetera. and so they had to get a second job on the side yeah. and um, somebody that was a manager in some firm for 20 years all of a sudden now has to like be a, a taxi driver at night and all that stuff but actors live that way all the time so a we are used to the insecurity First of all, it's built, it's part and parcel of of your toolkit as an actor is to be very accustomed to insecurity. And over the over the course of the years, you develop, you, you, you hone and uh, sharpen all your backups. So that sense of insecurity is always there. You never know when your next paycheck is coming from. You never know when your next job is coming from. So you've got all your fallback plans. You know exactly what kind of diets to acclimate yourself to. You know where to shop for the cheapest things. You know where to shop when you have more money. So the feast and famine things is adjusted. So your whole life gets geared towards... Uh, now that we've got a bit more money coming in, we can afford to do a bit more of this stuff. When we mm-hmm. don't have money coming in, we, have, we do a bit more of this stuff. And worst comes to worst, I'll call so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. I'll do this, 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 this. Um, so your whole life is ready for that imbalance. You have your emergency toolkit. You have your emergency to toolkit. You have, you know, I've got I've got my, my two or three phone numbers that I know if I pick them up, if I pick up the number and I call, mm-hmm. no matter what's going on in the world, and say, listen, I'm out of work, I need money, can I come in and work? They'll, they'll, they'll bring me in. Because I've... 
honed that over the last 15, 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have worked for them. They were, they were, it was my day job for a long time. Also, you, you, you pick up skills along the way that you can do on the side. So when one thing, when, uh, one thing, when the acting work isn't, isn't uh, uh, feeding you, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, um, then you uh, use your other skill to make some money. What, what are your other skills? Uh, sales. Yeah. What else? Sales, uh, taekwondo teaching, uh, which I haven't done in a long while. But then uh, I'm also a stonemason, carpenter. Uh, Those are useful <clears throat> skills. Yeah, yeah. Makeup, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the other, the third level is uh, we actors naturally have to diversify within their field. Mm-hmm. So when the film work dries out, then there's ideally a, a theater gig coming up. And if if both of those have dried up, then there's a voice gig ready. Yeah. So we have a voice agent signed up, an acting agent signed up. So we have a multi-pronged approach to the industry. And I think that no matter what's happening in the world, even even if there isn't much uh, much money out there to put on uh, the kind of plays that pay a lot of money, mm-hmm. there are people putting on plays. You know, there are yeah. people putting on plays, and they're putting on plays. Uh, even though they don't pay much, they still pay. Yeah. Uh, and there are always voiceovers. There are always voiceovers that that won't pay you your ten thousand pounds, but you can do ten of them that pay uh, whatever a thousand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do a hundred of them that pay two hundred. You know, um, they're always out there. Translation work, audiobook work. This, there's stuff that we have access to. That uh, no matter what's going on out there, there's a there's a backup. So I, that's why I call it recession proof. You studied in the U.S. and performed there. What led you to move to the U.K.? Uh, simply put, nine eleven. I uh, don't. I didn't have any American paper, uh, sort of a visa um, a passport or yeah. anything like that. I had visas. I had uh, OPT, you know, optional practical training. Uh, which is an extension of your student visa, so you can work in your field of study for a year. Mm-hmm. Then you can. Uh, then I had a H one a, a, B, a B a B a B two visa, I think something like that, which is like an internship type thing. Uh, and then that got, that got extended, and I got another one. And there was I was basically doing one step after another mm-hmm. to try and eventually get like a three year work visa, which could have eventually led to something more permanent. Uh, but then nine eleven happened, and all visas were denied. And the immigration lawyer said, "Look." You may as well. You've got a British passport. You may as well go to England, or anywhere else, and work there for five years or so, and then come back. Uh, so, which is what I did. I was in a play. Uh, they the play toured to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the cast went back to the states when it was done, and I went to went back to Morocco, got all my stuff together, and then moved to England, and then started again from scratch. Yeah. How is the industry different in the U.S. and in the U.K.? This is another thing I always say. Uh, at least during my time there, which is the 90s and uh, early 2000s, in, in America, you assume you're going, you're not going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is if you're just trying to make it as an actor. If you're, if you're you know, a, a biggish name and you've got an agent and you've got management and people uh, pushing you out there, then yeah, chances are you're going to get paid. But... That you know, for for eighty percent of the people out there trying to trying to work as actors, you assume you're not going to get paid unless they tell you otherwise. Whereas in England, uh, without an agent or anything, mm-hmm. you assume you are always going to get paid unless you're told otherwise. So you can actually make a living. You actually can make money here in England. Whereas in America, I, I worked nonstop. You know, nonstop, nonstop. 
I rarely got paid. <laughs> so basically it was just a way of adding to your reel? And- adding to your CV, adding to your resume. I arrived in England with maybe 40 projects under my belt. Um, it looks extremely professional. Not only that, but the experience uh, I got was second to none. I was, I, you know, I went to drama school here in England, and I was, I was a professional. I mean, I had I done all the things that they were teaching us. You know, I was there to make friends and meet people and stuff, um, and and learn a few things and sort of unlearn bad habits and stuff like that. But really, it's. Um, uh, you know the experience is invaluable, but that being said, you know that it's good to make a living. If you can't can't make a living out of it, then you're not really doing it. And the hope in America is you do that long enough, or you do that with the right people, that you get uh, an agent out of it and you get some representation, so that so that you can have other people out there looking for the work for you. What was it like as an Arab in both the U.S. and the U.K. post nine eleven? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's very it was hard. It was hard before nine eleven. You know, there was always, you know, most Arabs have a set public relations pattern or speech that we use to disarm people, and not to disarm people, forgive me, but to uh, to uh, <laughs> to put people at ease. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> disarm is the wrong yeah, word. Yeah, sorry, wait a second there. <laughs> no, sorry, but, um, but to put people at ease. Yeah. To make, not make them panic when they hear that you're Arab and you go, you know, um, which I think the older you get, I'm sure one does less and less, but gosh, in the beginning when I was in the States, yeah, man, you know, you, even, oh, there's, even pre 9-11, even pre 9-11, yeah, of course, yeah, people okay. grew up with seeing, you know, Arabs were terrorists on, on yeah. the screen, it was, it was an, about as stereotypical as it got, you know, that's, um, people, people, especially in America, their, their ideas of Arabs and Muslims and not all, all the rest of it, forget about it, you know, it was, um, it was not rosy, so when 9-11 happened, and that just ramped everything up to 10, you know, and uh, being in New York after 9-11, you know, people know about the towers falling down, but the the smell that was everywhere is, and any, any New Yorker who was there at the time will tell you that the whole, the, you were reminded of the, 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 the attacks yeah. at all times because of the smell in the air, which lasted months. Uh, and also the anthrax scares with powder popping up all over the place and stuff. So everybody was paranoid. Everybody was worried and scared and stuff. Um, so when you're an Arab, <laughs> you you don't want to stick your head above the parapet, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to make yourself known because A, you don't want to scare people. B, you don't want people panicking for no reason. Uh, uh and C, you don't want to fall on some cowboy who wants to be a hero. Because this word hero was everywhere, um, you know, everywhere in New York. Hero this, hero that, uh, the heroes. So everybody in New York had that quiet need to also want to be a hero and do their civic duty, do their bit. So if they found an Arab, they didn't care. They found, they didn't find an Arab. They found a terrorist. Yeah. They found a potential sleeper cell. You know, and there was constant, like, news coverage of... Sleeper cells, these people look just like you, they act like you, they sound like you, but they are terrorists, you know. And uh, and so any Arabic writing, any Arabic language, any, any Arabness uh, needed to be sort of covered up a little bit. But the minute you do that, you feel like you're guilty, you yeah. know. So you'd see a police officer and you'd say, oh, I hope he doesn't, I hope he doesn't ask me for my papers because all I have is a passport, it's an Arabic name on it. Um, it's written backwards it's written backwards that's the the Moroccan passport or I got my English passport Mm -hmm. it'll be like an Arabic name and he'll be listening to those 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 hundred a day uh, stories about fake documents and all that stuff and 
So you ended up just thinking, okay, I just need to avoid all these people, all these places. But then, yeah, you feel guilty. And you make yourself small. And you make yourself small. You make yourself sort of disappear a little bit, you know, and uh, your bouncers card you at the gate and the door. And then bouncers wouldn't let me into bars and all sorts of places for no well, reason. Was that a difference? Is that something that actually changed? Uh, that was something that changed, yeah. They, okay. they, they, everybody was, act, was reacting. Uh, New York, especially, I was in New York City. New yeah. York City became a reactive state. Nobody thought past their initial experience and their initial reaction to something. Yeah. Everybody would, you know, the bouncers would pick up my passport, see it, and they'd just say no. Uh, because it's an Arab thing. And and there was paranoia everywhere. And now that's that's changed now, obviously. But mm-hmm. um, it's left its mark. Yeah. And in England, uh, as soon as I arrived, I felt the multiculturalness of London immediately, which shocked me because I expected the opposite. I expected New York to be the, the melting pot mm-hmm. and London to be the bit more reserved sort of, you know, this is England and stuff. But it was in, in the exact opposite. In London, I've, I did not feel worried or scared for a second about my ethnicity, my heritage, my background. Did your name turn people off from auditions? No, it didn't, no. Okay. because I was going up for Arabic parts, okay. and that was a conscious decision. You were uh, leaning into the... Leaning into it, yeah. yeah. So I go where the work is, and like I said, I'm a very big guy. Uh, I'm not going to play the sort of uh, leading man, uh, um, the young the young guy, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, at most I play the the brother-in-law that's a bit overbearing or something. Uh, but but that, even that was a pipe dream. You know, in the end, it's just I play the big guy parts... I'm okay. also Arab, so if you've got big terrorists, I'll play them. Uh, big scary bouncers, homeless people, all that stuff. So that helped. My name helped there. There was definitely a moment where I thought, do I change my name? And I was going to be Joseph for a long while. Um, and nowadays when I talk to people who are, let's say, not racist, not xenophobic, <laughs> not biased... But just have that little tiny streak to them, yeah. right? That little pétillance in there. When I speak to people like that, they all say, oh, you don't look like a, a Yusuf to me. You look like a Joseph. You okay. Know? They all say that. You don't look like a Yusuf to me. You look like a Joseph. Wait, is that is that similar to the, oh, you're not like the other Arabs? Yeah, you're just like, uh, you should change your name to Joseph. You're jo- more like a Joe uh, than you are a Yusuf. Okay. You see? Because, and that's, and it, I think it's that more than anything. It's not that it scares people off. Um, it's just that it's um, it's just that it's uh, when they see that name, yeah. they like I say, it's the the, the industry is recession proof. Nine eleven happens, and then uh, there's plenty of work for Arabs and Muslims. So if you hide that fact, then it wasn't going to happen. But but then again, they wouldn't hire you as just a regular English person or a regular American. But are you getting more of those roles now? Now I'm getting more of those roles. Yeah, yeah. and I I can't tell if that's a question of. Uh, time uh-huh. and people getting to know you in the industry I'm sure yeah. it is um, I find the writing is getting more sophisticated mm-hmm. whereas it used to be quite two dimensional Yeah, it's getting really really deep and, and great uh, there are some projects that set things back in terms of the Arab uh, uh, question but uh, you know I did a project called Home that's coming out uh, this year mm-hmm. a guy named Rufus Jones is a fantastic actor but a brilliant writer and he he's just he, he he you know this is an englishman writing about a syrian refugee and just turning everything upside down on its head and the writing becoming very 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 sophisticated very 
very cool like that. And when you start to play parts like that, yeah, uh, like I played for him, that's then then people start to see you differently than just the scary one-eyed terrorists, you know. Have you seen um, The Informer on BBC? Not yet. It's on my list, and I know exactly who what you mean. But it's that type of okay. Uh, that's that. We see that that is an example of it. It's. Uh, Oh, that, that was my favourite show of the year. Yeah, it's great. Bodyguard didn't do anything for me. No, it didn't. It didn't do anything for any Arab or any Muslim because we every, all of us slapped our foreheads. Yeah. Because, yeah, you have this great opportunity and you, what do you do? You just go ahead and you just throw it right back a couple centuries, a couple, a couple years. Okay, I'm glad yeah. I'm not the only one who's no, thinking no, no, of that. No, no, no. I mean, it, it, it most was, Arabs felt that. Because a lot of the, the reviews and, were and all Brits, very positive. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. positive because it, because it made you want to watch the next episode and stuff. And the guy that wrote uh, bodyguard yeah. is, is a really fantastic writer, fantastic creator. It's just a shame that he he went down the same old yeah. tropes at the end. You know? It felt more homelandish yeah, than exactly, yeah. exactly. And I just think that's a you know if you think about what he was trying to do, then you can see the the sophistication trying to make a, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, yeah. but trying to make a, a, a female character more powerful than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he was focusing on, but in doing so. Uh, ended up falling right into the trap <laughs> and uh, and just doing the same old, same old. Yeah, the, the Informer definitely had, uh, well, I mean, you're going to watch it, but it had very three-dimensional characters and they just were all really well fleshed out and it still kept you hooked in That's right, the yeah. story. Yeah, I always say you can you can write a terrorist. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Um, it's, it's out there in the world. Mm-hmm. But take the challenge. Accept the challenge and, uh, and, and, and write... Write those three. Write them three dimensionally, which means you got to go to some places you might not want to go because you might have to. You might have to start to slowly rationalize this terror that they're committing. Yeah. Because you have to write from their point of view, um, and people have not wanted to do that traditionally. You know, because the people are these terrorists commit heinous acts, they commit mm-hmm. atrocities, they commit things that are unforgivable. So why are you gonna ever, as a writer? condone it in any way shape or form or yeah. understand it but but if you if you don't do that then you don't you you, you waste an opportunity to humanize them 100 percent. you humanize them 70 percent, and then the rest of it is parts of the caribbean you know um so uh, that's what i always say is is take up the take up the you know take up the challenge how do you choose your terrorist roles yeah very that's a very good question uh, it's a different. There's two. It's in two. It's a two part answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is uh, just in general. How does one choose? Um, how do I choose my roles? Uh, I don't. I choose. I take what I'm given. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not quite there yet where I can. I can choose things in that way. I can choose what to audition for, mm-hmm. uh, and what not to audition for. If, for example, I got a uh, an offer to audition for a film. Where a U.S. Marine, a retired U.S. Marine, who's a teacher at a school, uh, and then a, an Afghani terrorist takes over the school. It's a, a, kid, a children's school. Takes over and takes all the children hostage, and wants to uh, and holds the school hostage. And this retired Marine uh, uh, sort of does a sort of like diehard type thing and, mm-hmm. and fights all the terrorists. Uh, that I turned down in a heartbeat. Okay. However, before I turned it down, because that's the sort of story I don't want to tell anymore. I'm bored. Unless maybe they've done something really, really interesting with the terrorist. So I looked it up and I saw that it was in a, a film company out of uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. 
and they were filming everything in Georgia. Okay. Sorry, or in Atlanta, I beg your pardon. They were filming everything in Atlanta, which uh, then tells me I don't want to do it. Because if they were filming in Jordan, sorry, yeah. if they were filming in Jordan, for example, using Arab actors, using Arab cast, Arab crew. So an effort you know, into showing something a little bit authentic. Uh, it's not just that. The, the, the location uh, criteria for me yeah. was a guarantee that there was going to be a level of care given to the presentation okay. of Arabs and Muslims. Uh, something that is filmed entirely in a town in America using all the only local <laughs> local people and stuff. They're not, they're not going to care how they yeah. portray uh, Arabs. Um, so something like that I won't do. Uh, like I say, already I wouldn't have said, I would, you know, they, offered, they, they wanted me to audition for the, this lead uh, terrorist and I mm-hmm. said no. Because that's a, a story I'm bored of telling. And there's a couple other things that have come out which, are, which have bored me. Uh, I don't want to tell that anymore. Just somebody that's doing bad things for bad sake, badness sake, is something I'm not interested in. What I look for is something of a, a dimension. I mean, I did a show that called Strike Back where I played a really, really bad guy. Uh, and there's nothing good to say about him or redeeming about him. But he had three dimensions. It was interesting. He, was a, he followed the main series bad guy. He, was a, he followed him blind. He was devoted to him because he found something in him that he was missing in his own life and and this guy was a big you know and this show is about as it's about as straight down the line as it gets it's just guns and guns and tanks and soldiers and good guys versus bad guys and Mm -hmm. stuff so even something like that i'll do if there's an interesting angle to it all and the the lead bad guy had an interesting angle uh and um yeah it's just got to be interesting you know it can't just be just regular Regular stuff. Like I say, yeah, there was this other thing I did a long time ago. Every time you heard uh, the Bible, it was for something good, uh, healing, like a doctor healing somebody who was wounded on the ground or a prayer before a thing or at a church or at a wedding mm-hmm. or baptism or something like that. And every single time you heard the Quran, it was with some some sweaty, dirty terrorist over a bomb. And that was just, I mean, that's, you know, this was, this was a massive $80 million project <laughs> you know a big 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 miniseries in America and, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's the sort of thing I don't ever want to find myself involved with anymore yeah it's just going back to the lifestyle of an actor yeah. um, there's a dream of becoming an actor and then the actual reality of of the actor's life what were some of the biggest challenges that you initially faced when realizing that these two things are quite different yeah I think the big one is poverty. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Even when you get paid, you you know you make a killing, but you don't make a living. Uh, so you can make a lot of money for one job, but it's not a living because you, you might not get anything else for the rest of the year. Okay. So yeah, you'll you'll do a week's work and get paid, whatever, eight thousand. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, fantastic if you can do that another fifty-two times, but usually that's all you get for the year. <laughs> Uh, so most most actors earn about that much, but eight thousand, twelve thousand on a good year, you know, uh, for the most part. That's that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's how that's how much you have to struggle, and then you got rent and bills and all the rest of it. That's insanely. It's low. insane. It's insanely. Low. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's it's nothing. Um, you have to live on nothing, and so you have to have a day job that pays, and then that day job takes care of it, and uh, sometimes. 
when you don't have a day job and you keep yourself available and you find a way of maybe living with your parents or something Mm -hmm. so that your outgoings are as close to zero as possible. You're on your pay-as-you-go phone. You don't pay rent. You don't have any money to go out or meet people. And if you do, somebody else has got to pay, constantly borrowing money. But you're always ready for the next acting job that comes along then yeah you'll make eight or twelve thousand pounds a year and you've got to just deal with that that's 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 working what that's in a good year for theater you know i mean that's uh, a big theater gig can can pay close to eight thousand pounds for three months work so most people get will get one a year so if you get two theater jobs then mm-hmm. yeah you then you get some decent money and then the the, the so the poverty and the amount of money that comes in versus versus your plans for your life and how much money you need for that, that's a, that's a big one. The other one is connections, is, is how, do you, how do you get seen? And that's the stumbling block for a lot of people. A lot of people go so long without an answer to that question that they can't, they can't keep it up anymore. Uh, desire or no desire. And that's, I mean, and that's the, the that's a truly heartbreaking moment, you know. And I know people have committed suicide. I've not a lot of stuff. It's very, very difficult. I think anything that has a burning desire behind it mm-hmm. that is unfulfilled is agony. It's agony on the soul, and it it can lead you to do horrible things to yourself and be a horrible person to the people that you care about the most and the people around you. It happens regularly because of this uh, this this thing of not being able to. How do you keep your sanity? By living a very sober, happy life, um, which is uh, the key. Uh, remembering that uh, I'm not the one in charge. I put my faith in a higher power to take care of things for me. That's how I've always done it. Uh, well, not not always. Sorry. But uh, how I do it now, and it's it's been the, it's been the making of all my happiness, turning as many negative things as I can into a positive, and constantly reminding myself of what I do have and what I can do. Um, and, ha- and and along with that comes a mentality of abundance. So when I when I do get paid, I share as much as I can. I share my time, my my knowledge, my every all the things that I would would have loved somebody to do for me, I do for somebody else. And you just keep that going, um, and that's how you stay stay happy and sane and grounded. Um, and with time, those connections come. You just all you have to do is wait it out. I mean, that's that's the key. You just have to survive long enough for the industry to go. Oh, you're oh you yes yeah okay, we know you. We'll give you some work. You know. How do you deal with the rejection? That is easier than people think. If you know that you're going to be working as an actor and mm-hmm. you're just convinced of it, then everybody who says no is just just hasn't seen it yet, right? They just haven't they just haven't given you a chance yet. They just haven't seen what you can do yet. I think dealing with the rejection is easy. What's hard is dealing with the nerves, the nervousness of when you go in to an audition. Mm-hmm. And wanting to do a good job, and uh, and wanting to get the part, and not and wanting wanting to do the audition as best as you possibly can. I think that's the that's the the, the difficult bit. The rejection is just part and parcel of the industry. Actors deal with it all the time. It gets to you sometimes, but that's usually, in my experience, at least, it must be it might be different for somebody else. But in my experience, it gets to you when other life stuff is getting there, 
when when there's other things that are slipping out of your control that are, that mm-hmm. are that are becoming more difficult to deal with then the rejection starts to hurt <laughs> because then you take it personally that's that's all it is you then know? you take it home with you then you take it home with you you, you think you know Actually, see, I'm, I might just be answering the question in a different way because the way I think about it, if I don't book the part, mm-hmm. my my thinking is I was not, my version of that character was not what they had in mind. And that is the that is the case. That is the case, yeah. I would say, 99.99999% of the time. What you've just presented, what you've walked into the audition room with, how, what they've seen when you've walked in and how you've done the character in the audition is just not the way they saw it in their heads when they wrote it. And not in a good way. Because um, sometimes you come in and you do something that they didn't think about and they go, oh, that's actually what we want to do. That's better. Yeah. Um, but more often than not, you just you just haven't fit what they like. Or you're perfect. You are perfect for the part. You have done nothing wrong. It's just that the other lead that you're supposed to be acting with is of a particular quality and type. Yeah. And they're the most important one. And you just haven't matched what they've done. And, I, and I've seen that on the other side of the audition panel. I've, I've been in an audition setting when I've seen other people audition where two people came in and did perfect auditions. I mean, textbook perfect auditions. One of them a bit better than the other one. But the one who was second best got the part because they were they were a better match chemi- physically and chemically. There's more chemistry between... More chemistry between them and their co-actor yeah. that they're going to be acting with elsewhere. Or something as stupid as, uh, you know, the whatever, uh, Tom Cruise is, is is not over six foot, he's five foot, whatever, ten. And if you come in and you're six foot five and you're meant to play his pal, uh, he doesn't want to see that. So you can, he, he's only shorter people or something like that. I, and I use him as, a, as an example. Mm-hmm. I, that's probably not the way Tom Cruise works at all. Um, but 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 it can be like that. So that's how I think about it. It's just it's just not what they want at the time. When when rejection hurts is when you when you walk away going they don't like me. You know they yeah. don't want me. That's that's when you take it personally, and that's what you shouldn't do. It has it's no bearing on the truth. But when life is going bad, and when you've got family troubles, and you had an argument with all your loved ones, and you feel alone, and you go into audition, and they don't want it, and they don't want it, then you can. You know, you might be forgiven for feeling like that. How did you learn that? Is that a personality trait, or is that something you actually learned? Ah, that's yeah. How do you learn how to 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 to, to, to separate? To separate. Um, you learn that. With, I I learned it with experience. I, other people might learn it differently. I've learned it with experience. Okay. Just the more I do it, the more roles I book. So that's the other thing. Sometimes you'll book a job and mm-hmm. you think, how the hell did they give me that? Why would they give me that part? I, I mean, I didn't even audition that well, you know. And and a couple of those, in, you know, in a row, will tell you that there is something else going on than what you think is going on. Mm-hmm. And that's happened to me many times. I, I'll audition for something, and I call my agent, and I say, I definitely didn't get that one because it was horrible, or I didn't really do anything, and I'm not really feeling it anyway. And boom, the next day, they're like, they love you. They, you got the part. And when an actor hears that, they go, they love me, really? Wow, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I'll do the job. But then you think, why did why? So, so what I think is working sometimes doesn't get me the job, and what I do think is not working gets me the job. So there's something else going on in how and what they're receiving that is that trumps how you feel about it. And the more you do that with experience, the more you realize what you impose on the audition or the situation in terms of your uh, preconceptions of what's going to happen that doesn't really have much bearing on the truth. 
do you ever have auditions where you prepare the role in a certain way because that's what you think yeah. the role should be but then um i guess you have some self-doubt and think oh maybe they want something else and then yeah. how do you make that decision between how you're gonna play it off yeah so it's good good uh good um good tip for people going into job interviews because this is a job interview thing you prepare more than one thing okay you prepare multiple versions and you have backups and you know in, in our industry sometimes people want monologues i mean i haven't done a monologue in a long while which is another thing that goes away once you become a professional that whole doing a monologue for somebody for the most part uh but back in the day when you had monologues you need you need a couple of different monologues in your in your back pocket um, so you always prepare multiple things. That's that's one, and also recognize that it's not your uh, it's not what you prepared that carries the way. It's that carries the day. It's it's what you do in the room with them, and so go in there. And if they want something else, and they want to see it a different way, just do it. Do it on the fly. Just enjoy the opportunity to just interact with them live. You know, that's how I think about it. With the addition of Amazon Prime, Netflix, and Netflix in the movie production game, yeah. have you seen the numbers of gigs trickle down to the number of auditions you get? Do you think there's a link? or No, I haven't really seen a difference. Because what tends to happen is you'll, you won't audition, for the most part, you won't audition for a Netflix. I mean, I say that, I'm about to go film a Netflix thing. Um but usually you audition for a, a TV series that's uh, NBC mm-hmm. or ABC or okay. Fox or whatever, whatever. And then uh, you get there on set and they go, yeah, actually, this, you know, this is Netflix as well. And you go, oh, right, great. Okay. So it's NBC uh, so for sci-fi and then it's co-productions and all that stuff. So that's usually how it is. Or you'll do a film and then they'll sell it to Netflix or Amazon. But Amazon own Netflix own productions and soon to be Disney own yeah. and uh, and uh, Apple own and all that stuff. Um, they will they're they're just like every other production out there. It's just a project they're okay. auditioning. It's kind of one and the same. Uh, where where it starts to affect the actors in is is money and the the package they the financial packet and package mm-hmm. they put together. Are they more interesting? Uh, yes and no. I mean, Netflix pay an episodic fee. They don't pay you a weekly fee like everybody else. So you get paid per episode. Okay. Uh, and that's usually if the if 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 the episodes are filmed are not going to be not going to take a long time to film. Usually, you know, you film one episode of something, that could be three weeks work, mm-hmm. um, two weeks work. So you would get paid uh, a weekly wage. And then your buyouts, you know, or royalties if you're lucky. But Netflix pay you one big, one fee for the entire episode. And if it takes two weeks to shoot, so be it. Okay. So Two two or three, four weeks to shoot, whatever. They're paying you one fee for the episode. So it can work out well if you're, if it's quick in and out. Mm -hmm. uh, Or it can be not fair if it's longer. You've worked in theater, film, television, and radio. Which do you prefer? Uh, I would say uh, film and television, screen work. It's right now. It's where it's where I get the most. I'm learning the most at the moment. And for a while there, it was theater because I was learning the most. There, I was learning. I, was, I felt the craft, learning the craft a bit more on the job. I did a lot of work at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and that was invaluable. You know, not just. 
not just the craft of playing Shakespeare and technical theater and all that stuff, but just the sheer volume of work and the effort and energy you need to keep up that pace, which I did for five, almost five years. You know, a lot of uh, you you learn your craft that way. You can really earn your money and stuff, and that and that I appreciated. And I had no desire to do some film work or screen work. And then as soon as I finished that, and I felt that I was ready to move on, and I started focusing on uh, screen work. I still am, and I'm and just to to just learn that learn that craft, and I'm getting a lot of pleasure on that. What tips do you have for young actors? My t- so the thing I always say first is know thyself, and to thine own self be true. Right. Uh, from Shakespeare and um, is, it, is it Othello I think or Hamlet anyway I should know that <laughs> um, but but you've got to know you've got to know who you are as much as possible I, know that I, I say that and a lot of people roll their eyes and they think oh my god I can spend my whole life trying to figure that out what I mean is as best you can start to get an idea of, of, of who it is that you actually are what are the things you like what are the things that interest you what are the things that are important to you? What are the things that tend to be more urgent in your life than other people? And what is it that you know about yourself that you need in order to be effective, efficient, happy, uh, to, be, to be useful? And then how do other people see you? What, what is it that people see when you walk into a room? And be honest, man. You know, really, really think about it. Uh, have a very clear understanding of the image that you project out into the world. Uh, does it change when your mood changes? Or are people still going to see the same thing no matter what? Um, that's a really important bit <laughs> of, of the industry because it's all about what people see. Mm-hmm. Um, people who, who have no business being in this industry will make a living out of it and be multimillionaires and, and live the life of your dreams because of how they look. Um, it's a big part of it. So understand how you look. And uh, and I don't just mean a sort of, am I attractive, am I not attractive? Am I? It's literally like, what is that feeling that you give off when you walk into a room? Because then all you need to do is audition for those parts that match that. Uh, especially if what you look to the world and what you feel like on the inside are, are completely different. That's even better. Because then you can really control that image that you project out into the world. So that that for me is... My big tip on getting work, you know, walking to auditions and not being afraid because you know you're walking in and they're going to be looking at you and they're going to go, oh, great, yeah. And so, so likewise, you understand how to accessorize your life perfectly. What that little scarf that you have, that light scarf that when you drape it over your neck in such a way gives that sort of Bedouin feel or the Afghani feel or maybe just like a, a little brooch uh, that you wear on your shirt or on your hair or whatever, or like the earrings that give off that sort of corporate vibe. If you've got to play uh, some sort of leading, uh, whatever, um, business, uh, head of business type of thing, or a doctor or whatever, like so that you always, that you really, really, really know yourself and you know, you know how to control how other people see you. That's the first one. And then the second one is, or maybe the first, in no particular order, Ask yourself the question again and again and again if this is something you really want to do. Really, I mean, no, no joke. Like, really ask yourself, why do I want to do this? Why do you want to be an actor? Uh, why is this the way forward? You know, it's like drug dealers. They reach, they reach the age of 50 and they want to give up. 
is they don't want to do it anymore for obvious reasons. But they can't. They've got no other qualifications. They don't know how to do anything else. They've got a little bit of money squirreled away. Uh, bad people on their on their phone <laughs> list, and they want to they want to turn over a new leaf. They would no don't want this life of crime anymore. Mm-hmm. But they're stuck. They're fifty years old. They got there's nothing else they can do. Or they're forty years old or thirty years old. They've been doing it ten years. They've passed their prime. Now they got to actually make a living, doing something else. And they're not used to earning seven pound whatever an hour, you know. So actors are much the same because once you dis- once you commit to it for a length of time life has kind of moved on and you now you're now locked into it so as soon as you decide oh god i can't do this anymore you're 38 years old and um and you don't have any other qualifications so you kind of have to start again um so just ask yourself why you want to do it because it's not worth the pain if you don't desperately want to do it you know like you asked the question about dealing with rejection rejection is very very easy to deal with when you know without a shadow of a doubt that this is what you should be doing not what you want be to be doing, what, what you, you should be doing, what you need to be doing, what the world needs to see, and whether you like it or not, even if you absolutely hate it, you still have to do it. That's that's who should be doing this job, you know, because everybody else is going to suffer unnecessarily. That's what I think. That's my, you know. What piece of work are you most proud of? Uh, this thing I just filmed um, called Home. It's uh, coming out on Channel 4. It's about a Syrian refugee who hides in the back of somebody's car. Uh, a family, a British family. And uh, so it's basically Paddington, but instead of a bear, it's a Syrian refugee. And that, well, I'm very, very proud of that. Some good people worked on it. Uh, they approached it properly. They had, the, they had, uh, they really had the best of intentions, inclusive, loving, caring. It was wonderful. I was very, very, very proud to work on that. This was filmed in Morocco? No, this was filmed here in England. Okay. Uh, there's another project I filmed in, in Morocco, which I'm also very proud of, called Baghdad Central, which is also for Channel 4. That's that's out later later in the year. And that was uh, sort of a, it's a kind of a cop, whodunit, murder, mystery type thing, but in the middle of the occupation after 2003, after Gulf War Part 2. Okay. Um, and so the protagonists are all surrounded by rubble and bomb buildings and jeeps and cars. And he's a, an ex-Iraqi police officer and he's got a police detective and he's got to investigate these murders. And that was really, really cool because there's a lot of Arabic in it. And it's, this is on British British mainstream television on prime time. They're going to have a lot of Iraqi Arabic being spoken and stuff. It's very, very exciting. Oh, so the, it was actually very true to the... Very true, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of... West, there's, a lot of there's, there's about 70% in English. Okay. And the, rest, and the rest is in Arabic. No, but I mean, like, sometimes you watch a movie that's supposed to be set in some specific Arab country and then it's... Films in Morocco and it's Moroccan Arabic in the background. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, it's no, no, no. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that does happen a lot. But uh, this one, no, there was this this one is definitely very Iraqi, even though it was filmed in Morocco. You know. You worked on Woody Harrelson's Lost in London, a movie that was shot in a single one hundred minute take with a cast of thirty plus hundreds hundreds of extras in fourteen locations across London. Two black cabs, one police van, and one VW camper, and most importantly, broadcast live. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, so um, it's uh, this is another favorite project. Uh, it was incredible. Yeah, that was two and a half months of rehearsal, uh, just like a theater play, all of us together in this uh, studio in, in Holborn, 
And, uh, and it was phenomenal. We felt like we were making history while we were filming it, which we were, because uh, it had never been done before. And uh, when you think about all the uh, uh, logistical issues of shooting something in one take, it's not just one take, you know, it was broadcast live at the same time. Um, so no camera cuts, one camera choreographed to follow certain pre-arranged action. But the sound mixer was walking behind the camera, mixing the sound at the same time. Uh, you know, there was like 750 antennas all over London, uh, multiple vehicles, lots of movements. I mean, it's insane, absolutely insane. And a huge uh, production, uh, figuratively. And, um, and it was very, very, very fun. Fun to be a part of, fun to get to know Woody and just uh, live in his orbit for a little while and stuff. We all, we all got very close. It was the first thing he'd ever directed. You know, it's, it was great fun, great fun. I mean, I had hardly anything to do in it. As, as all of us had, had our little bit and then the camera moves on and then we're done. Yeah. And it was just about his night in London when he had a terrible, terrible, terrible time. Um, yeah, it was great. It was fantastic. Oh, the movie was technically fa- fascinating. Yeah. Um, it was everything was just perfect. Yeah. That at was, least on at least from the yeah, no, no, audience's it, perspective, it, right? It all went it all went according to plan, but that was yeah, it took two and a half two and a half months to uh, to get that right. You speak Arabic, French, English, and Italian and have many accents in your repertoire. Yeah. What are your favorite accents to do? Ah, good question. A Moroccan accent. Yeah. Probably Zinka, Medina, Moroccan chocolate. This uh, people like to to speak in uh, English, all that stuff. I like I like that that character a lot. I've, pl- I've done that a bunch of times uh, because it's the kind of people we grew up with. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like people who people. I like people who speak in another language, believing they're speaking in that other language, but they're absolutely not. <laughs> And but do you ever actually get the chance to use your Moroccan accent, or does it have to be a Middle Eastern? It's uh, yeah. So that's a good. Stereotype. That's another. That's another good question. Uh, it's usually an accent that is that 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 you will not find out there in the world, in the Middle East. Uh, there's no such thing as the Middle East accent that I put on to book the parts and that I do in movies and films. Uh, that accent is a film Middle East accent you know because the real accent can't be understood 100% you can you can understand it 90% of the way but then one or two words get swallowed up because it doesn't make any sense you do Egyptian and it's all about Boris everything's with a B Belize you know Belize help me so when you do a real please help me Belize help me or me or whatever Mm-hmm. an English audience or an American audience won't understand it so you need to s- to switch it a little bit into this other accent and then you get to please help me now that's what you hear in movies that's yeah. what you hear on TV screens but it's not really located out there in the world somehow I'm always I'm always I'll put it this way I'm always very surprised when I meet an Arab and they sound the way I sound in series and <laughs> films and stuff I think wow where are you from because you're speaking the way you speak, that's that is film Arabic accent. That's not real Arabic accent, you know. And where do they turn out to be from? Ah, uh, a bit of a mix. Uh, you know, American school, uh, Syria. <laughs> you know, uh, kind of all over. I haven't met too many. Usually, usually, an authentic accent, an authentic real accent, is not one that you want that they want to see you performing because it it 
its authenticity lends itself to a, a lack of clarity. That's what okay. makes it authentic. Yeah. You know, and there, clarity is the name of the game. You know, so you learn to do an accent that sounds close, mm-hmm. but is uh, is not necessarily the real thing. What was it like uh, getting beat up by Jason Statham <laughs> in Hummingbird? Yeah, look, it was great. That, that's that's like working with Jason Statham was, was just really a very special experience. Um, he's a really cool guy. Uh, I didn't get to. You don't get to know a guy like that very well. He's really, 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 really focused on what he's doing. <laughs> you know, he's so focused. Uh, he's just got a, a drive and a and a, and, a, and, a, and a and a commitment to the work that has leaves no time for superficiality. He's also supremely confident in himself and his abilities. He needs no one. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't care what you think what you say you could even lose your temper and try and get in an argument it doesn't really matter he doesn't care uh, you can't do anything to him he's a he can beat anybody up <laughs> you know all that stuff um, uh, you know all women want to be with him all men want to be him it's that type of stereotype okay added to that he's got the charm of a, of a Hollywood A-lister like all these A-listers when you meet them from Woody Harrelson to um, you know, Matthew McConaughey Emma Stone all these people that I've, I've been lucky enough to meet, Jason in particular, they have this ability to make you feel like the most important person in the world when they're talking to you. They're, they're, they see you and their face lights up, you know, and they give you the big hearty handshake and ask you a few questions here and there. Um, they're gone. almost as, It's over almost as soon as it began, but you're left with this really great feeling. And that's how that's their that's their bread and butter. That's what makes them who they are. That's their bread and butter. That's how they rise to the top. So he has that, and combine that with total sort of alpha male confidence makes him makes him a real presence to be around. It's 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 fascinating to watch. On top of which, he's a master at, at stage fight at screen fighting. Do you like that? Do you like uh, com- uh, stage combat? Yeah, yeah, I like stage combat. I, I went to Lambda. Uh, which is known as being the best stage combat school in in England, and uh, uh, they all do stage combat, but Lambda really goes for it, you know. Yeah. And um, I really got into that. I was really sort of uh, had a, had a, had a, I had an affinity for it. Uh, me and my my stage combat partner, we did very well. Um, and I like it on screen as well, you know. I, I like stunt men, stunt women. They're they're yeah. they're the hardest working people, you know, and they're fascinating. Uh, they have a lead a fascinating life, and when they're good, like with Jason Statham, that movie, Hummingbird, or or Redemption, or whichever one you want to call it, um, I worked with the stunt team for two weeks or so before filming those fight scenes, and uh, that that was that was an incredible experience, you know, and and just watch him adjust and choreograph and everything. It was really great, really really great. What's your ideal role? My ideal role is one that I've kind of just played in home. It's uh, a very three-dimensional Arab character who who, uh, defies uh, uh, the stereotype and the expectations, who uh, is allowed to show three dimensions and allowed to have a bit of a journey. Uh, You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Big big, uh, emotional uh, loops and swings and arcs. That's, That's the ideal. In Shakespeare, I'd love to play Coriolanus, Macbeth, all that stuff, all the usual, all the usual things. But uh, fundamentally, it's just a job that lasts a long time. <laughs> you know. Where can we watch you perform? 
Well, there'll be a, I'll be uh, home. We'll be out on Channel Four mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, spring. Yeah. Then in the autumn, uh, Baghdad Central will also be out on Channel Four mm-hmm. in August time. There is a show at the moment called Night Flyers coming out on, which is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's right now it's on US Netflix, but it's on Sci Fi Channel okay. in America. But I think it's on Netflix in America and Canada and everything, North America. It'll be out in England soon, uh, I believe, on Netflix. And then there's this other show I'm about to film, which is very exciting, called Criminal. That's a Netflix show. That'll be out later in the year as well. That sounds great. So it's all kind of on screen right now. And then, uh, you know, there are DVDs and things out there, a different movie. Just IMDB me and you'll, uh, you'll see all the different fun projects I've been a part of. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Get in touch, drop me a message, and be happy to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Not That Original. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast.